in the latest episode of our True Connections podcast. Alan Hooks is joined by the founder and CEO of Matillion, Matthew Scullion, who in 2021 was named the UK winner of EY's Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Matthew not only shares his journey to starting Matillion, but also his learnings as a successful business leader and the link between company culture and innovation. Matthew, Happy New Year, first and foremost, and many thanks for joining us today on True Connections. It's really a delight to have you join us. I know many of our listeners will be keen to hear from you today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me and Happy New Year as well. It's a privilege to be here and I'm looking forward to an exciting conversation. (laughs) And before we get into that conversation, Matthew, another thing to say, I guess, is a huge congratulations on your winning of the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Award for 2021. It's a huge achievement and really look forward to hearing a little bit more about that a little later on. And before we do, it'd be great to firstly talk a little bit around your experiences and your life as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, as a leader, in fact. And I'd be really keen to hear about all the progress at Matillion, how you've gone to grow one of Britain's latest unicorn business, and also some of the principles you stand by and what you live by in terms of your day-to-day business interactions. But going back to the early days, Matthew, you established a business fairly early on in your late teens, in fact. How did that come about and what was the background to that? Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking about that. I don't know whether I should feel embarrassed about that or not now, but it was certainly a great fun stage in my career and something I felt very lucky to be involved with. The story is really simple. It was in my teens. So I was at school finishing off my A-levels and by way of a work experience placement, took a job at an end user IT site. I actually wasn't like a lifetime geeky computer guy, but I think they just thought, oh, this person looks lively. We'll see if he fancies a summer job, which I took. I met a gentleman there, my boss, who a few months later said to me, hey, I'm going to set up a software business. Would you like to come? And the timing was quite good for me because on paper, I should probably have been going off to university. And I thought to myself, well, what's the worst that can happen? You know, this is going to be really interesting, exciting. I'll learn a load of stuff. And if it works out, I don't need to go to university. And if it doesn't, well, it's perhaps a little bit more nutritious than just going on a gap year. So that's what I did. And we set up this small software business. It was a really good time to do it. It was the late 90s. And that meant that you had two really strong tailwinds, one of which was the millennium bug. And that was driving you know, every company in the world, really, to replace all of its IT systems. And so lots of people were spending money on software. And the other thing was, it was kind of the rise of the internet, right? Like late 90s, people were just getting into the internet. And we traded off those two tailwinds. We built basically a small SI, value-added reseller-style business. And we built a smallish services practice, I think 30, 40 people. And in my evenings and weekends, I built a software product for the first time in my life, which we went on to sell to some proper companies and it won a couple of awards and things. Off the back of that little bit of excitement, an American company kind of got to hear about us and ended up buying us. And so the whole gig was over start to finish in, I guess, maybe three or four years learned a lot and was kind of off in my technology career. So yeah, that's how that all started. Seems like a long time ago now. I'm sure it does. But I'm sure there also there was a number of learnings, Matthew, throughout that relatively short period of time that you experienced then you've taken on 
now are any of those that you still recall maybe with fear and dread but anything you take from those early days that you use day to day thanks for acknowledging the fear and dread yeah i definitely recognize that you know what there are it might be a bit rumsfeldonian you know there was looking back on it known knowns known unknowns and unknown unknowns there's some things that i did back then that i'm really glad i did and continue to live by you know probably top of the list for that for me and i say this to lots of people at the beginning of the careers is about integrity treating other people how you want to be treated yourself and being a good person it's amazing how small this industry is in some ways i guess how small the world is and how long people's memories are and i have bumped into people that i met all the way back then since i've been running matillion in the last 10 years and you're right, that fear and trepidation's there. You're like, oh, goodness, I used to interact with this person back when I was 20 years old, involved in real information systems. I wonder if they thought I was a total idiot about that. Thankfully, in general, they didn't. And I think that's because I always tried to be a good person. And, you know, on the odd occasions, I'm lucky enough to maybe go in and chat to some school kids or some people doing their business degrees or computer science degrees. I always say, look, if there's one currency not to spend, it's your integrity, right? Try and keep that. Another big thing I learned back then was around the kind of intersection of the customer and the technology, which I think has always been one of the things that I've enjoyed and tried to get competence at over the years. Because it was a small business, business and to some extent the byproducts of the particular technology we were using at the time it was quite a crucible of being next to the customer and the technology at the same time and it really taught me the early principles of the fact that what it's all about is making customers lives easier and also when you're communicating about technology doing so in a way that's resonant to customers i think perhaps the final thing i learned is that perhaps not a surprise the co-founder of that business the ceo actually i wasn't the ceo of that business just to be clear but the guy that started it up and who i joined as a co-founder you know he'd never done it before i was 18 you know we weren't stage commensurate rockstar leadership team and so the final thing that i learned from it is that i still had a lot to learn and 20 years later i definitely know a bit more and i'm glad about that but i've perhaps got sanguine with the fact that you've always still got a lot more to learn and that's a good thing because it makes it fun and interesting you continue to develop don't you i think that's important learning for everybody so after that matthew in terms of the journey as it's continued you had a fairly lengthy career in commercial it software development following on from the initial business but then you established Matillion, what, back in 2011, I think it was. And I'm sure you're going to tell me that you didn't take all the credit for doing that and for establishing that business. But what were the trigger points around that time that made you do that? Speak to a number of entrepreneurs that have come out of a corporate life, senior management positions and decided for whatever reason to set up businesses. And one or two have said to us, part of it is because I had a vision, part of it is because I was a practitioner, Part of it was because I was just bored and wasn't enjoying life within a big corporate entity. Where did you see it from your side? Yeah, it's a great question. And I've thought about it before. I'm always aware that it's so easy to be revisionist when you look back on this stuff. You know, I could tell the story in a really flattering way and <laughs> sort of rewrite history. I'll try not to do that and be authentic about it. And I think it's maybe a mix of several of those things that you just said. So for me, one thing that's definitely the case is it's been something of an arc, a continuum. Starting all the way back at that first business I was lucky enough to be involved with in my late teens and early 20s, because 
Firstly, that gave me the itch, the desire, and a want and need to be entrepreneurial, to be a software entrepreneur again. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, it also gave me a pretty clear cognition that I didn't really know what I was doing in the early days. And so thinking that whilst the opportunity is still there to learn and still be having fun and still be being entrepreneurial, but within another company, then I should run that down. Perhaps, again, trying to be like super intellectually honest, the company that myself and my colleague were involved with, him as the CEO and me as the co-founder and CTO back in the late 90s, that got bought by this big American company. And then various incarnations of parts of that company were bought and sold. And I kind of hung on for the ride of that. And I had a small number of share options in that company. So there was a payday coming. And that probably made me hang on to that ride until that payday came. It wasn't huge, but also I wasn't coming from a background of having lots of other capital at my disposal, right? Just sort of a normal guy from Manchester. And so before I set up another business, I guess, to put no to find a point on it, I needed a little bit of money and that was a route to getting it. But what made me make the decision? Well, for the first time in my career, the year before setting up Matillion, I'd gone from being a co-founder and executive at a very small business to working in a much bigger business, a quite large business, but with a unusually high position in it because I'd kind of come in through this acquisition as sometimes happens. So then, you know, bits of that business being bought and sold and I'd really ended up as a middle manager. And, you know, I wasn't super close to my boss at the time. I wasn't super enjoying the work. And for the 10 years after my first company had been acquired to that point, I'd been telling people I'm going to set up a software company one day. And the person at the top of the list that I told that was Mrs. Scullion, my wife, Caroline. And we were on holiday in the summer of 2010. And I was getting a load of grief from back in the office and getting disturbed on holiday a whole load, which, you know, I wouldn't normally mind, but it was not the good type of problems. And I think I said to Caroline, oh, you know, I'm really not enjoying this. And she said, well, hey, you've been talking ever since I met you about the fact you're going to set up a software company. You're no longer hanging on for the payout. You don't seem very happy. Why don't you keep doing that? So in terms of giving credit to people, authentically, I must genuinely give credit to my wife because she gave me the kind of shove which was particularly brave of her because we'd only recently been married and we were about to start a family. And that's not necessarily the perfect timing to lose all your income and become incredibly busy. And she knew that that's what she was in for. And that's kind of what gave me the shove. So I think it's probably a combination of those things. The final thing I'd say is we do get passionate about stuff and think maybe it's going to go somewhere, right? And the last job I'd had before setting up Matillion in this other company was I run the UK software practice or division for a large European systems integrator. And under my purview of doing that, I had a team of people that built software for customers, a team of people that consulted on how to build software for customers, a team of people that like integrated different software products together. And that team was just getting into cloud technology and we really liked it. And then finally, everywhere else in Europe, this big company had thriving data analytics and business intelligence practices, but I didn't have one of those in the UK. So they asked me to build one and I went and learned BI and data analytics by observing other geographies of this big company and then came back and built one in the UK. The intersection of those two things, data analytics and the cloud, 
was really appealing to me. I was like, you know, everyone loves data analytics and need more of it. And this cloud thing's going somewhere. And so you had Caroline giving me a nudge to say, you know, you've been talking about this for years and you're not happy, go do it. And me thinking, yeah, and actually I could do something around data analytics in the cloud because I think that's going to be a big tailwind. That's me trying to be intellectually honest with the story. That's how it came about for me. It's a confluence of factors, I think, taken from a selection of those ones that you presented me with and the question. And Matthew, I guess what Matillion looks like today is probably a little bit different to what it looked like 11 years ago when you first established the business. And a number of our listeners might not be as familiar with Matillion as others, but can you just give us a feel for what the business does? We've heard a lot about the use of data for organizations and making the best of the information that is to hand. What's the key differentiator and where do you play a role in terms of data analytics for businesses today? Absolutely. First of all, to just tip the hat to your observation that it probably looks a bit different today than it did on the first day. Yes, this time 11 years ago, Matillion was in my back bedroom and now it's a decent sized company, although I hope most of the growth still to come. But yeah, what do we do? What are we all about? The world is pivoting to data, AI, artificial intelligence, ML, machine learning, data analytics. These technologies are changing for the better every aspect of how we work, live and play. And that's happening now and it's happening everywhere and it's happening really quickly. But there is a problem in the story, and that is that every AI, machine learning or analytics use case you've ever heard of or will ever hear of, and all of the hot new thing technology startups that take advantage of those technologies, they all rely on a supply of useful, high-quality analytics-ready data to do AI machine learning and data visualization use cases over. You can't take an AI project and point it at a load of distributed raw data and expect it to work. You have to make the data useful first. It's very like steel. The world's full of iron ore, like Earth's made of iron, right? But it was only in the Industrial Revolution that we started building bridges and ships out of steel. And the reason for that is we figured out how to refine iron ore into steel at scale. We were able to refine it a bit for three and a half thousand years before that, but it was hard and it required specific skills to do it. And you only got a small batch of steel for every piece of work. So you had not many people, not much created per person. You don't make a lot of stuff out of steel. On comes the Industrial Revolution, another thing born in Manchester, I will just point out. And then we figure out how to make steel and scale, and we start making all sorts of interesting things out of it. The same is true of data, right? We know how to refine data into useful product. We know how to take it from iron ore into steel. But it's the purview of a small number of artisanal people, you know, engineers and coders. And each of them do it slowly, and therefore we can't make much useful data. We can't make much steel. And this is a big problem, and it's the problem that Matillion is trying to solve. Our technology makes it easier and faster to turn data in its raw state, its iron ore state, into useful data that can be used for artificial intelligence and machine learning and data analytics, and to do that faster, easier, and with less specific skills. And that in turn unblocks the supply chain. You know, it widens the pipe of useful data to allow us to make the world a better place in every aspect of how we work, live, and play. It's a big problem, and that's why we're excited to be solving it, and that's what we do. And Matthew, so in terms of your customers, do they really understand the value of the data that is available to them? In other words, do they themselves get it in terms of the ability for them to use that data in the best possible way? 
Yeah, they definitely do. I would say that the hunger, the desire to innovate with data, to understand and serve customers better, to streamline business processes, to improve and develop products or even for data to be products, that hunger massively outstrips the ability of the world to provide useful analytics ready data and satisfy that hunger. So yeah, all of our customers have a supply problem rather a demand problem. Now, some of that is because of the customers that we focus on, right? So the majority of Matillion's revenue comes from larger businesses, big brand name companies that you'd have heard of. And those are sophisticated businesses looking to get competitive advantage. Big businesses are also the ones that have the biggest constraint, right? If you're Sony or Cisco, or Amazon, who is a tiny fraction of our large enterprise customers, then most of the people that work for you aren't data engineers. If you're a 100-person tech startup in the Bay Area, then probably most of the people that work for you are data engineers, and so it's less of a problem. But in those big companies, it's only a small percentage of the workforce that are able to do this in the kind of manual, primitive, artisanal way. And so they have the most complex data landscape, you know, hundreds or thousands of different systems that have data in them, some really new and modern, some really old and legacy. They have the most to win or lose by innovating with data. You know, if you're a multi-billion dollar revenue company, then a business process improved, a customer better understood, can be millions of dollars made or saved. And they also have the least ability to do something about it because the smallest percentage of their headcount is able to manually wrangle data. So for the most part, I'd say customers do understand this problem. Of course, it varies across industry segmentation, right? Small tech startups, they natively understand this stuff. Big companies, they deeply understand the business gain that can be gained by putting data to work. You know, maybe in the mid-market, people have still got a little bit of the journey to go. And that's the exciting thing about our category. You know, we're maybe only in the second innings of this baseball game. And I shouldn't have used that metaphor on a call with a fellow Brit, but there's nine innings, I think, in a baseball game. So we're not that far through the story yet. (laughs) And just continuing that thought there, Matty, I guess, what's the experience of some of the more traditional um, industries and organizations. I'm thinking the likes of banks, insurance companies, you know, almost the polar opposites to some of those that you described in terms of the startup and the tech world. What's your observation from that perspective? Yeah, so in many ways, particularly with scaled organizations, those types of companies are our stomping ground. Certainly the target customer that we go after, and in many cases, the sorts of customers that we win. I think the biggest bank in the world is City, and they're certainly one of I think they may be the biggest bank in the world. And worth noting, therefore, that City actually invested in Matillion last year because they see the business value in our technology and how it can make their business go faster. So large traditional organizations like that, they understand deeply the business advantage, the way it can improve every aspect of how they work by putting data to work, whether it be basic analytics and data visualization, or whether it be artificial intelligence and machine learning. But they also don't wake up in the morning and necessarily think about code and technology and software. They think about business value and serving their customers better. And our technology for them, therefore, is a really great fit. You asked me, and I failed to answer a few minutes ago, you know, what's the unique differentiator of Matillion, I suppose? And, you know, we're a technical product. And so for the audience's benefit, I won't go too deeply into that. But one of the big things is that we're what's called a visual low-code, no-code technology. And that means rather than writing software code to make things happen, you draw diagrams, which is both much quicker 
but also easier to maintain. And finally, requires a different skill set, a less technical, more business-oriented skill set. And so if you're a bank or an insurance company, and we have many of both of those uh, NASCAR slide of customers, that's really attractive. You can innovate faster, you can maintain it more easily, which is important because you're going to have a bit over time because you're a big business. And finally, you can use people that are a bit more businessy and a little less engineering-y. And that's great because business people understand what they're trying to do that little bit more. That helps you go quicker. And also, if you're a bank, you've got a lot more people like that than you've got hardcore data engineers. Does that answer the question? Absolutely right. And in many ways, an experience that we see in terms of that shift in skill set that's going to be required not only now but in the future even more so Matthew I think certainly from a practitioner's perspective that is true you touched on investors a minute ago and I want to pick up on that Matthew and obviously the business has grown exponentially in the last few years you've taken on investment from outside over the last couple of years as well with a valuation at the back end of last year of just over one and a half billion dollars, which is just a phenomenal achievement. It must be so pleasing. Just talk us through your experience around going about external investment. And also, as a second part to that, just what your observations are from a UK perspective in terms of appetite for spend on smaller startup tech organizations and what you've seen from your experience. Yeah, absolutely. More than happy to talk about that. And you're quite right. Matillion's raised north of $300 million of venture capital, of external investment, fuel growth. And we would not have been able to make the progress that we've made so far in the timescale that we've made it without that, both on the go-to-market side and also, crucially, on the R&D side, developing the products that our customers value and buy. And I think it's worth starting there because a lot of people ask me about venture capital and how do I do a Series A and how do I become a unicorn and all that sort of stuff. And the first thing I always say is, first of all, just think whether you need to, think whether it's appropriate to your business model. You need a couple of things, right, in your business model. And not having these doesn't make your business model invalid. It just makes it not a venture business model. And there's lots of other great business models. But to be a venture-backed business, I think you need a couple of things. You might get a better answer from a real-life VC. But you need a large total addressable market in order that you can build a valuable company. You need a realistic chance of being able to take a chunk of that market. And then you need some scaling dynamics, which are common in certain industry verticals, certainly including software, where we sit, that allow you to do that quickly. You know, you might have a very large market for something, and be able to build a great business, but not be able to grow very fast clip because maybe you need, every time you sell it, you need to do 50 or 100 or 1,000 days of implementation. Well, if that's the case, you can't just suddenly sell 10 times as much the next day because you're going to need 10 times as many people to do the implementation. So that's not an easy business to scale quickly. Whereas within a software business, we can sell a marginal instance or copy or license of Matillion's data integration software without needing any more resource to do that. And we can also do that globally because it's just software, right? It's bits and bytes. So the first thing to say is, is it the sort of business that needs venture capital and that can get it? And if the answer is no, that doesn't make it a bad business, right? It just makes it like, don't waste your time thinking about VC. So those are the dynamics of our business. And I think the first big thing for us was, realizing that and saying, okay, 
the number one enemy of our business now is time. We've come up with something cool. We think we're solving a problem that customers will be willing to pay to have solved in a way that we can build a valuable business from. And so now our biggest enemy is time because if we just kind of sit there on our hands growing organically off the balance sheet, that by the time anyone knows who we are, five other companies will have done this and gone faster. So you then think, oh gosh, suddenly I'm short on time. Let's go and get some money and go faster. Our first institutional raise, as in raising money from another company, was with a British investment company, what's called a VCT, a venture capital trust, which is a typically SMB-focused investor that has a tax wrapper around it to encourage investment in you know up-and-coming innovative British businesses. Not necessarily technology, but in our case, obviously, it was. This was a great company that remains an investor in Matillion today and that we're deeply grateful for the investment from a company called Wire. FM. And without them, we would not be where we are today because they invested the first 5 million institutional dollars, which allowed us to get some Matillioners on the ground in the US. It allowed us to add another couple of products. It allowed us to get to the next landing pad before we could raise money again. Really, I think the breakout round for Matillion was at Series B, though, because that was the first time we attracted blue chip, high quality Silicon Valley investors and a company called Sapphire Ventures and another company called Scale Venture Partners, who between them have also been behind a longer glorious list of other technology companies you'd have heard of. You know, people like HubSpot, RingCentral, LinkedIn, Fitbit, Box, Looker, those companies also have been invested in by these same VCs. We were lucky to secure investment from those companies in 2018. The difference between the two is not the money, right? Money is money. The difference is the expertise. Because the software industry in the UK compared to the United States and particularly the Bay Area is quite nascent, you don't get many software investors that only invest in software. Whereas in the Bay Area, if you were to say, I only invest in software, people would laugh at you because that's such a broad thing to do, right? Not only are they specialist software investors, they're specialist investors within a segment of the software, you know, like B2B or B2B enterprise infrastructure, or even just data or just security or just development tools. So what you get is a lot of expertise from people that have seen businesses go from a back bedroom to NASDAQ many times before. And that gives you both the playbook, but also like the encouragement and sorts of vigor to assume that you're building a multi-billion dollar company of consequence and you start acting accordingly because you now have that advice and encouragement on board. The other thing that they do that's really great is they encourage you to go and hang out with lots of other people that are either doing this or have done it before. And that's great. Who's the best person in the world I could learn how to be a CEO of a software company from? Well, maybe it's the world's best software CEOs. So they go and introduce you to those people and you ask them questions and things. So finally, I would say that whilst we were incredibly lucky choosing to partner with our friends at YFM because they have been unwaveringly supportive through this whole journey, the typical British playbook is very different from the US, particularly West Coast US playbook. The typical British playbook is very conservative and looks to mitigate risk and focuses a lot on not losing your shirt 
and being super efficient about your allocation of capital. Whereas the US venture playbook is like, look, we're going to back 10 companies. We're going to go as fast as we can on all of them. And a few of them ain't going to work out. And that's okay. But one or two of them will become multi-billion dollar businesses that we'll all have heard of all around the world. And that's how we'll make our return. And you only kind of have to look at which one works better by seeing where all the companies came from, right? And Facebook and Google and Amazon and Netflix, they came from the West Coast of the US, right? It works better. And so that for me is my big observation of what we need to get right here in the UK. We need to change our attitude that building high growth, high burn, you know, loss making, capital consuming businesses is a bad thing. It's not. Sometimes it doesn't work out, but sometimes it does. And you build consequential generational global businesses that become incredibly valuable, do good in the world employ tens of thousands of people and pay lots and lots and lots of tax dollars, right? That's the engine room of the US economy. People here in the UK, we're made of the same bags of carbon and water. There's no grassroots problem. (laughs) We have brilliant software engineers being pumped out of our very good quality universities. But what we don't quite yet have is getting better, but we're not quite there is either the attitude, the cognition that we're going to wake up in the morning and start work on building a consequential company worth billions of dollars and in doing so make a dent in the universe bigger than ourselves that's not how we think in britain you know we kind of stay in our box and are a lot more cautious so is that a cultural thing do you think matthew yeah and i'd kind of say it's in two parts right so first of all i think it's less common in the uk for a founder or founding team to think i'm going to build a huge business and it's less common because we've just not seen it happen here that often right it's happened once or twice but not that often whereas it happens every week in the us so i think we kind of don't have that cognition that we can do it and you know you often see british entrepreneurs building a business like maybe 50 or 100 million and then selling it because they're like wow that's amazing why is you think no no let's keep going let's make it worth a billion or five billion or ten billion but the other thing is like if you're one of those people that does wake up in the morning and think i'm going to build a consequential generational company then you know this is a minor exaggeration and as i say it is changing it's not universal the world as regards britain is sort of there to put you back in your box right <laughs> it'll be yeah yeah calm down Matthew you're not going to do that and you know we do like the business and we do think we can make a 3x return on our 2 million dollar investment and to protect that 3x return you know to protect turning 2 into 6 we're going to load this business up with 101 different ways of mitigating risk which unfortunately a byproduct of is it means we also mitigate high growth and the ability to build a very large company. So I do think, you know, quite passionately, actually, that that's something that we need to get right in this country, because these big businesses that could be created by the fundamentally smart, well-educated, entrepreneurial people of Britain, those companies tomorrow are the economic engine room of the UK. And if we could do more of that, then those companies would create more value and wealth and that's people's pensions getting better and it's more tax being paid. Technology companies also are great places to work, right? Because we're always in a worldwide race for talent, we really prioritize looking after our staff and we celebrate diversity and we work hard on having great cultures and that's all good stuff. We need more of that here in the UK. And that strikes at the very heart, I think, of Matillion, and it's a real hallmark of the culture. You've spoken a lot about innovation 
You've spoken a lot about being a consequential and a generational company. Matthew, can you constantly innovate? I mean, we've seen a number of organizations over the years that have tried to reinvent themselves, time to re-evolve and keep up. Where do you sit on that particular argument? Can you continuously create value, create product and innovate? I think you can. It's the bottom line up front. But I think like many things in business, it's not complicated. It's just hard. The other thing you sort of spoke to as you were introducing that question was culture. And I think culture and innovation are intrinsically linked. Culture too can be scaled. And again, it's not complicated. It's just hard. So first of all, like to validate my point of if it's possible, it is because we've seen it done, right? I mean, maybe not absolutely forever, but certainly for decades or generations. Apple was set up before I was born, I think, just about. And it's now worth $3 trillion. And they've been through a few incarnations. Microsoft, similarly, they would go further back in time. You know, we could look at someone like the big auto manufacturers and we could look at someone like a General Electric, maybe. Or, you know, there's companies that have been around more than 100 years that are doing different things today than they were when they first got started. So, yes, you can definitely do it. Um, It's just hard. It is also true that once you're up and running, you've got scale, you can be disrupted from below. And I think the speed at which that happens today is much faster than it used to be. But you can keep innovating too. So can it be done, in my opinion? Yes. And it talks to one of your quotes, which I love, and it's the fact that no person, process or product is ever finished, right? So that's that. It's back to your point in terms of you can continuously hone and seek excellence. And that in itself is something that can carry on. That's absolutely right. That's actually taken from Matillion's values. So we have six values that we run the company to. They're the only non-negotiable thing about working in Matillion, you know, sort of being able to work within the guardrails of those six values. One of them is that we innovate and demand quality, the definition of which is that Matillion, we recognize that no person, process or product is ever finished. That was the most important one of those, by the way, is person. Um, (laughs) That's the reason I said, in my opinion, at least, innovation is so intertwined with culture. Because in order to innovate, you've got to be vulnerable. And another one of our values is confidence without arrogance. We've got to be a bit confident because we're trying to solve a huge problem, which means we're trying to build a company in a huge total addressable market. And you know, you're ultimately not going to be successful at doing that unless you back yourself. But it's super important not to be arrogant because first of all, people don't like it. And that makes you know doing business harder. But secondly, perhaps more importantly, it closes your eyes. It makes you think you're right, which stops you learning, stops you improving every process, person, and product. So these things work together, right? It's culture and innovation working together. You've also got to build an environment of kind of intellectual safety and within it, hire really smart people. If you've got smart people, but you don't give them a culture where they can speak up and have ideas, and if those ideas are good, be given resource to run with them, then you can have all the smart people in the world, but they're never going to tell you anything because they know they're going to get shut down if they open their mouths and therefore you don't innovate. And then, you know, once you've got an idea, you've got to run with it and go quick. And that's why another one of our six values is bias for action. You know, in Matillion, we get things done. And, you know, some bright young thing in the team says, oh, I think we could do this better. Or I think we could start doing this. Or I've listened to this customer and they told me this and I think we need to react to it. Then you get on with it. So if you can encode that culture and scale it, 
then that, in my opinion, at least, is a big part of fueling innovation. And for more scale businesses, there's other ways as well. You can acquire some of that talent in organically and you can set up dedicated functions to do it as we have, actually. We have a R&D organization is sort of split up into the bit that thinks up the new ideas and the bit that drives forward the current revenue generating products and all that sort of good stuff. So, you know, there's other specific tactics, but ultimately I think it's about culture and scaling culture. And Matthias, the CEO, has been at the helm since the start. How have you innovated as a leader in the business? Oh, well, the sort of bottom line up front on that, I would say, is a lot <laughs> and will continue to want to and need to. But that line you kindly quoted a moment or two ago, you know, at Matillion, no process, product or person is ever finished. Perhaps argue that of those, person is the most important. And that starts with me. I'm a completely different business person and CEO and leader than I was at the beginning of Matillion, hopefully with some of the core DNA still there, but certainly learn a lot on the way. I think that's important for a couple of reasons. One is the needs of organizations change over time. And when you're growing at the clip that we've been lucky to so far, actually, it's pretty quickly, like the whole business sort of sheds its skin and changes every couple of quarters or certainly every year. So just the tools you need in the toolbox are different and you've got to go and learn them at or ahead of the rate required. But the other thing is, without wanting to sound like a stock record, is going back to culture. A line we say often at Matillion is, at Matillion, the team is the most important thing because it's the team that finds and delights the customers, that ideates, builds, and supports the products, that makes the business run. That's all the team. So the team's the most important thing. The team lives in a culture that's underpinned by the values. So think, gosh, like the most important thing sat on top of these six values. We better be authentic about it. And you can do values by coming up with three or four catchy buzzwords, putting it on some posters and sticking them up on the bathroom door, and that won't work. Or you can do values by deeply living and believing them. And if you're going to do that, that starts with me, right? I've got to believe it and and be authentic about it and not be a hypocrite because otherwise no one else would. Why should I expect them to? So being that I do do that and try to do that, and being that one of our values is recognizing that no person's ever finished, then I kind of have to know that I'm not finished. And actually, for me, that's really exciting because that means that the job I'll be doing this time in 12 months time is a little bit different from the one I'm doing today. And I'll have learned some cool new stuff along the way. Matthew, just coming back to the start and many congratulations on you winning the EY Entrepreneur of the Year for 2021. I really hope you enjoyed that program. And as a firm, we had a real privilege in being involved last year. What was it like for you? And what's the next steps in terms of worldwide entrepreneur of the year it was a complete joy and a huge privilege not only to be involved but amazingly to be lucky enough to be named the winner of the uk entrepreneur of the year and i think that's for like two reasons really stick out for me firstly there's a lot of business awards and most of them or many of them maybe not most but many of them you know, they're kind of not that merit-based, right? I mean, some of them, it's sort of the way to get nominated is to buy an expensive table for dinner. And others, you know, maybe you fill out one side of A4 describing your business and someone makes a judgment on that. And, you know, it's all a little bit sort of mutual back patting. That is not the case with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. In my experience, it is by a significant margin, the most thorough test of you as an entrepreneur and of your business. And, you know, those guys go to town on it. You submit a raft of documentation. They come out and see you in your offices. You do a 
regional kind of heats and then a regional final. And then by the time you get to the UK final, you alongside 20 other absolutely fantastic entrepreneurs are telling your story to some of the UK's best business people. I mean, the chief executive Tesco was on my interview panel, for instance, as well as some other fantastic judges. And, you know, it's a really, really thorough process. And so when you're coming from hundreds and hundreds of applicants, all of whom are good, and then going through that very thorough process, when and if you're lucky enough to win it, as we were this year, it just feels like, wow, that's amazing. That was a real test. And therefore, I feel really good about our involvement in it and being lucky enough to win. And then the other thing, of course, is <laughs> who you were up against, right? <laughs> it was like the entire UK entrepreneur community. And the other people that I was privileged to meet during the process were amazing. And their businesses were fantastic. It's worth noting as well, it's a cross-industry thing. So, you know, in my case, some people might have heard of us in the software industry, but I'm also competing, I suppose, alongside people in retail and apparel and energy and law and, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff, manufacturing. So you're like up against the whole country. For those reasons, I found it like a really interesting and stimulating process to go through a proper test. And I met some fantastic people. But mostly, I just felt incredibly lucky and privileged to be involved with it and certainly to win. It's great. And it's certainly for me, just a great celebration of just the sheer skill and the talent we've got across our entrepreneurial population across the UK, which is brilliant. And next steps for you on the EY program, Matthew, you're going on to the worldwide program this year. Yeah. And of course, with that, it simultaneously becomes something of uh, joy and celebration, but also uh, trepidation and fear that you're going to let all your friends in blighty down if you don't come home with the bacon when you go to Monaco for the worlds, I suppose. We won't let you back in. <laughs> yeah, nor should you. So I believe it's 10 or 12 years since the UK last got the global final one. Whilst on the one hand, maybe that makes you think, oh, well, you know, maybe we've got a shot. On the other hand, there's a reason for that. And the reason is it's hard. And you are now not up against the whole UK. You're up against the whole planet and i've had a look at some of the other country level winners and as there was in the uk finals there is some absolutely amazing businesses in there lucky for me i think our business is amazing as well and i'll be telling that story as excitedly and front-footedly as i can i'm hoping that there's no sort of eurovision song contest style curse of being british i don't want any sort of brexit kickback there from the judging paddle or anything like that but i'm really looking forward to it and we'll be extremely happy if we win but also if we don't knowing that the competition is at such an incredibly high bar that just being there is recognition indeed. The final thing I'll say is I'm very grateful to EY, not only for the process, but for putting the world finals in Monaco, which is very nice of them. So I'm quite looking forward to the trip out to Monte Carlo in June, which is, if I remember correctly, when the finals are. Well, I'm sure you'll do us proud and very, very best of luck with it, Matthew. It'd be great to see you there. Matthew, thanks for joining us. It's an incredible amount of topics discussed great to hear the continued success of Matillion and really really interesting to hear just some of your thoughts and perhaps look forward to hearing from you again in the future not at all really appreciate your interest in the story and it's not only great fun but a real privilege to be able to talk today so thank you that's all for this edition of julius bear's true connections podcast thank you for listening and please do keep in touch with us on twitter linkedin and at juliusbear.com 